Hello friends, welcome to Camp Kaiju, where we break down a different monster movie each episode. We're talking the good, the bad, and the downright campy. Kaiju are fun, and all strange beasts are welcome here. We're your hosts, Vincent Hannum and Matt Lespleen Levine. Camp Kaiju is brought to you by BanditsEmporium.com, your favorite shop for unique t-shirt merchandise and the official t-shirt partner of Camp Kaiju. Long sleeves, short sleeves, red shirts, blue shirts, soft shirts. Oh, you know you love their shirts. Well, now you can use promo code CAMPKAIJU at checkout for a 10% discount. Go to BanditsEmporium.com or hit the link in our bio. Hey, whatever your style, BanditsEmporium.com has you covered. As they say, we sell shirts. Hey friends, welcome to Camp Kaiju. Super stoked, Matt Lespleen Levine will be joining me here any second. We're going to chat about Guillermo del Toro's 1997 film, Mimic. A uh, picture that is uh, maybe a little underrated. See how it shapes up um, all these years later. So, uh, I think we've got the mic going. we got Matt. How you doing? Good, how are you? Excellent. Guillermo del Toro is one of my favorite directors. This movie I had never seen before, but I, I found so many things really fascinating about it. And I, I want to hear your thoughts. You know, a lot of people sort of envision what could have been with this movie. But I think even aside from that, there's a lot of value and merit to this movie with what we still have, with what, like the finished product that was released to the world. Uh, it's really stylish. It's, it's a great story. It does definitely have problems, but I think they're pretty interesting problems. So if you're a Del Toro fan or just a, a creature feature fan, it's, it's pretty great for sure. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for bringing this to the show. My pleasure. I've, yeah, this like right away when you asked me several months ago to, uh, to take part in Camp Kaiju, this was one of the first movies I thought of. So really happy to talk about it tonight. Excellent. Uh, I know you were taking the lead on this one. So like, where do you want us to start on our journey into the sewers of New York City? It is a journey indeed. Um, I mean, I think we can lay the groundwork with the story of the film and kind of go into some of the troubled production backstory. Uh, that seems like the best way to to dive into this film, which, uh, you know, as you alluded to, was Guillermo del Toro's first Hollywood feature. Before this, he made Kronos in Mexico. Uh, and this was kind of his first attempt to to break into Hollywood filmmaking. And, it, you know, it, it didn't go all that well. I think he would be the first to admit that. He's talked a lot about how unpleasant of an experience it was for him. In fact, he compared it to his own dad getting kidnapped of Mexico. He said that this experience was pretty much on that level. So that kind of indicates what, what it was like for him to make this movie. But Can I pause real quick um, about that anecdote? I heard that his father being kidnapped in Mexico was actually a better experience because he at least knew what the kidnappers wanted compared to the Weinsteins who didn't know what they wanted out of Del Toro's movie. Yeah, there's a lot to say about that, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, it's unfortunate that that was his first experience uh, in Hollywood, especially considering you know, he's become one of the most acclaimed genre filmmakers in Hollywood, if not one of the most acclaimed filmmakers, period, in Hollywood. So it was an auspicious start and kind of a rocky start for him. But um, yeah, he's come a long way since this movie, even if it has a lot of merits in its own right. Uh, we can dive into the story if that sounds good to you. Yeah, well, uh, how about this? Okay, so we'll go into the story and then I will give a rundown of uh, sort of the main cast. Once we have this, the, the scene set, we can go into the the troubled backstory that makes Mimic a little infamous in the history of Hollywood. 
I love it. Spoken like a true storyteller. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the world of Mimic is in New York City. It's in Manhattan. Um, there's a pandemic that's taking place at the start of the film. There are sort of these ominous high-angle shots, like stories above street level. Um, and this ominous music and these sort of uh, grim opening credits where there are sort of these shots of, like, butterflies and different insects pinned to, like, entomologists' boards. So that's kind of setting up the the milieu of the film but um but yeah we're in new york city there's a pandemic that's going on called strickler's disease which has taken a lot of the uh young lives throughout the city we see kids dying very painfully uh pretty much right away in this movie um sort of like quarantined uh rooms you know doctors are in there with like hazmat suits and things like that um you know it's kind of a sign of the sentimentalism the sentimentality that's going to come in this movie where there are sort of you know, dying kids right away. It definitely, you know, tugs at your heartstrings right away. Um, but it turns out that this pandemic is uh, carried by cockroaches. So there's an entomologist named Susan Tyler. Um, she sort of leads this charge. She develops this plan to breed a new species of bug, which as we know from horror and sci-fi movies is never a good idea. Um, but the thinking behind it is that this kind of hybrid insect will secrete uh, a toxin or an enzyme which will speed up the cockroaches' metabolism and basically uh, starve them all to death. Uh, it seems like this works. Uh, the, the pandemic goes away. Um, you know, there's all this talk about kids' lives being saved, so everybody's very happy about this. There are triumphant news stories. Um, but then we flash forward to three years later. Uh, Susan, the entomologist, is now married to uh, deputy director of the CDC, played by Jeremy Northam they discover that there are still these sort of strange man-sized creatures roaming the subways in New York City. Uh, and there are these other characters that sort of become involved in this. There's uh, like a, a grizzled cop. There's a, actually, there are two grizzled cops. Um, so one of which is a detective, the other of which is kind of a subway transit cop. Um, there's a, a shoe shiner um, who, uh, you know, comes from another country. It's sort of unclear where he comes from. He's played by an Italian actor. Uh, the shoe shiner sort of takes care of this child who seems to be on the uh, autistic spectrum, who is kind of aware of all these things going on. He, uh, he sees this weird man-sized insect creature um, and, you know, eventually sort of becomes endangered by, um, by what's going on here. And eventually they all converge. They kind of dive deep into the subways but, uh, underneath New York City to determine what exactly this strange insect mutant is and if it's related to the sort of hybrid strain that they developed several years ago. Uh, thank you for that. That was, that was great. And I need to step up my synopsis game uh, come next episode. Um, so yes, so some of those actors in the movie, uh, the main protagonist is played by Mia Sorvino. And she had the, uh, just won an Academy Award the year before for Best Supporting Actress in Woody Allen's Mighty Aphrodite. But she, she is fantastic in this movie. And funny enough, in Mighty Aphrodite, F. Murray Hamilton is also in that. And he plays sort of a mentor character in Mimic. And I love F. Murray Hamilton because he won an Oscar for his role in Amadeus, yeah. which is one of my favorite movies. Yeah, F. Murray Abraham, I think, right? Not to, sorry. I think, I, I could be wrong, but I think that's his name. But, but yeah. just, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> No, no. So you know who Murray Hamilton is? Vaguely, yeah. Wasn't he like an old TV actor? He was the actor who plays the mayor in Jaws. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My bad. F. Murray Abraham is in Amadeus. 
Murray Hamilton is in Jaws. Very what? different movies. Um, Jeremy Northam, who you said plays Mia Sorvino's husband. They are trying to have a child of their own, but it's a difficult process for them. So that's some great uh, underlying subplot there. Uh, Giancarlo Giannini is the Italian actor you mentioned. Uh, I didn't recognize him. He's He plays a good supporting role in the Daniel Craig James Bond movies. Yeah, yep. And he's in Hannibal, uh, the Ridley Scott movie with Julianne Moore. Um, he was in a lot of movies back in the day with Lena Vertmuller. Um, yeah, he's, he's had a long and storied career. He's great. Yeah, and he lends such a, a grounded presence to Mimic, which I really enjoyed. Um, Charles S. Dutton, he is... Oh, he's the... Um, the Black Transit Authority cop, uh, who is a great, like he's a standout performance in this movie, I felt like. Uh, Josh Brolin has a role in this movie as the other cop. He's like a grizzled detective. And yeah, I'm not sure if I bought his character, but I always enjoy watching Josh Brolin in a movie. And then I didn't know this, Doug Jones plays one of the, the cockroaches. So there's another uh, Guillermo del Toro movie for him. Who, of course, yeah, I mean, like, The Shape of Water he moved, he went on to do. And, uh, and yeah, like you said, many other. Uh, Blade 2 he's in, I believe, Hellboy 2. So uh, And Pan's Labyrinth, of course, he played the monsters in that. I also wanted to just say that I was watching Mimic, and, you know, it was, it was made in 1997. And I couldn't help but think about other movies, horror monster movies from the late 90s, that also involved giant cockroaches and or other bugs of some sort. So you had Men in Black in 1998, giant cockroach. You had The Faculty in, sorry, The Faculty was in 98, Men in Black was in 97, so the same year. But The Faculty is about a shape-shifting giant bug creature. And there was uh, Starship Troopers, which came out in 97. Of course. Of course. Joe's Apartment from 1996, New York City Bugs, and a movie called The Relic, which also came out in 97, which isn't really a bug per se, but there was a lot of comparisons to Mimic and The Relic because uh, they both deal with a life form and evolving faster than it should. So it was kind of like a good time for weird bug giant cockroach movies at the time. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, you know, I saw The Relic when it first came out when I was like 13 years old, and I don't think I've thought about that movie a single time. Thank you for bringing that back up. Maybe we'll watch that and talk about it for a future Camp Kaiju installment. It looks um, kick-ass. I had never heard of it, and I was like, holy crap, why haven't I heard of this movie? So maybe we should put that on the short list. I think so. I remember me at 13 year years old loving it. I don't know if I would feel the same way now, but maybe we'll find out. If there was like an obsession with like urban decay and like the sort of um, the grimy underbelly of the city or something, you know, not all those movies take place like in an urban environment. But uh, yeah, it makes you wonder like why that was such a, a dominant motif at the time in movies. Well, maybe you think about like the 90s, at least I think of it as like a good time. Uh, the economy was up, this and that. But maybe it was the filmmakers response to all this happiness. It's just like. Yeah, but what's under the happiness? There's a seedy underbelly of corruption and decay. That's a great point. I, yeah, I was thinking of a, another movie called Phenomenon by Dario Argento from the 80s, uh, 87 or 88, I think, somewhere around there. 
Uh, Jennifer Connelly plays a teenager at a boarding school who has the ability to like telepathically communicate with insects. It's a weird movie. It's not from the 90s, so it's not totally related to this conversation. But the sort of love of insects and the fact that they're not necessarily like um, sinister or gross, but can actually be like really beautiful and awe-inspiring, I think is something that Phenomenon and, uh, and Mimic both kind of share in a way. Well, that is definitely uh, one of Del Toro's trademarks is, you know, the, mon the monsters are often the beauty in his movies and the monsters are actually the human beings in the movies. Don't know if that applies to Mimic, but I think, I don't know, we could talk about this now. How much of, how much influence did the studio have on shaping or dismantling the themes that Del Toro would probably have in this movie if it was just 100% his, you know? Yeah. Well, they definitely definitely had some impact on it. It would be a very different movie the movie if they didn't interfere so much, uh, which we'll, you know, we'll certainly get into in a moment. But uh, I, I think still that theme is here in a way, you know, and again, we'll go into that a little bit later, maybe. Uh, like, maybe we could talk about the production backstory first and then how the movie was compromised after that, perhaps. But yeah, no, that's, that's a good point, for sure. Okay. Um, well, then, without further ado, oh, one more movie, A Bug's Life. <laughs> Ants also around the same time. And Ants, Woody Allen yep. with an Ants. Yeah, yeah. Woody Allen weirdly is making an appearance tonight. Harvey Weinstein is making <laughs> the cancel culture sort of theme this evening on Camp Kaiju unintentionally. Well, it makes you wonder who the true monsters are. Yeah, yeah indeed. Or they're just uh, terrible people in Hollywood. That could be it too, you know? So yeah, the, the project started like pretty promisingly. Uh, Kronos, Del Toro's previous movie came out in Mexico in 93, I believe. So four, four years before Mimic came out. Uh, the Weinstein brothers, Bob and Harvey, were two of many people that were very impressed by Mimic. They approached Del Toro to direct what was supposed to be a short film as part of a horror anthology called Light Years. Um, and the project that Del Toro ultimately decided to do was based on a short story called Mimic written by Donald Wolheim in 1942. I was surprised to learn that that story was from the early 40s. That's pretty impressive. Because the story itself sounds arguably like even stranger than this movie. It's about like a, a man-sized insect breeds and takes care of his spawn, like in just like a New York City apartment. So it's easy to see what attracted Del Toro to that kind of story, I think. He, Del Toro got a screenwriter named Matthew Robbins to develop the screenplay for Mimic. Um, but as soon as that process started, already there was trouble. Uh, the Weinsteins brought in several different writers to do rewrites. Uh, John Sales and Steven Soderbergh were two of the writers that were brought on. It's interesting reading about the different versions that the script went through. Uh, Del Toro apparently loved John Sales' version of the script, uh, but the Weinsteins didn't think it was scary enough. They didn't think, you know, they thought it was a little bit too dark, too grim at the end. Uh, apparently Steven Soderbergh's version was just like crazy off the walls, like body horror the entire time. And even Del Toro was like, I, we can't do some of this. Um, so, you know, they brought in more writers, many of which are uncredited. Uh, so, you know, the, the finished version of the screenplay ended up being kind of uneven, a little banal, to use a word that Del Toro used to describe it. Uh, sorry, I'm just looking at my notes here. One of the changes was that Del Toro wanted the insect to be a bark beetle, thinking that it would be, you know, an insect that would be on, like, the trees in Central Park. Um, and the Weinsteins forced him to change that to cockroaches, which he didn't want that. It would be known as the giant cockroach movie, which it kind of is. And personally, I kind of love that about it. Uh, so a lot of changes happened during the rewriting process. And then once shooting was underway, it got even worse. It sounds like Bob was kind of the, the major uh, antagonist in this case. He would show up on set. He would say that the movie wasn't scary enough. 
he would claim that Del Toro didn't know how to direct. Um, he, they would, he and Harvey would make ridiculous demands, you know, asking for like bigger teeth on the cockroach monsters. They asked them to look more like aliens, which doesn't even make sense in this case. And they ultimately threatened to fire Del Toro. And it was really Mira Sorvino who kind of held, had his back. She said, no, if you fire Guillermo Del Toro, I'm not doing this movie anymore. And she had a lot of clout. Like you said, she had just won the Oscar the previous year. So it was partially, maybe largely, thanks to her that he actually stayed on as director. You know, they also said that Guillermo del Toro was shooting it a little bit too artsy. You know, there were all these sort of uh, beautiful shots, like crazy colors, like golden ambers and like cold blues and different like color schemes. And they were mad at him for making an art movie, what they thought, out of what they thought was just kind of like a, you know, a B movie. And of course, that's exactly what Del Toro wanted. That's what makes him so great. He takes genre movies and turns them into very stylish works of art. So I just think it's kind of fascinating that that was an issue from the very start of his Hollywood career. So, you know, Del Toro finished shooting the movie, but after it came out, he disowned it. There were a lot of scenes that were shot by other directors he had no creative input on. Uh, Robert Rodriguez was actually one of the directors that was brought on to do some of those scenes. You know, like we said before, it was a rough experience for him. Uh, you know, the pacing really is compromised in this movie. Some of the story doesn't make that much sense. Towards the beginning of it, we see Mira Sorvino and her team of entomologists going into a subway with a bunch of cockroaches. And at that point, like nothing has been explained about like, or very little anyway, about who her, who her character is and like what her strategy is for like eradicating this pandemic. So there are things like that where it's like, where are we? What's going on? Who are these characters? Which seems largely a result of the various reshoots and rewrites and things like that. Yeah. And then, like, it's such a classic story of independent filmmaker versus the studio machine and the quote-unquote Hollywood formula, which often entails explosions and a love story. And those things are there. And... You know, there's nothing wrong with explosions, but I did read somewhere that it was something Del Toro didn't want to include. His ending for the movie, obviously spoilers, uh, involved, it, it didn't involve a happy ending. The, the cockroaches, they are the next evolution. And what happens is that, well, humans are screwed. <laughs> However, the Weinsteins, Hollywood was like, no, that doesn't sell tickets. You have to have some contrived scenario where the, the husband, he causes an explosion, kills the colony, and then he somehow survives to have a happy reunited family at the end. Yeah, and not just him and, uh, him and his wife, but also the autistic boy, Chewie is his name, uh, is there like hugging both of them as well, which doesn't really make any sense. Like he barely knows them. Granted, they did kind of rescue him, but still it's like, where did this like, um, family unit come from all of a sudden. It's, it's, yeah, you can tell that it's like attacked on, maudlin, not very convincing ending, for sure. Right. As well done as it is. Yeah, in some ways. Um, there are some parts in the ending. Um, yeah, that last shot is not one of them. It's pretty terrible. <laughs> you know, that's one of the things that makes the movie so interesting. There can be some like really stylish, intense, suspenseful scenes, which you have to that Del Toro was largely responsible for. And then a scene right after that that's pretty bland and, you know, not very effective. No. Um, there was another anecdote that I read. I, it was, I think it might have been Harvey Weinstein. So the, the husband character, he wears glasses in the film. And Harvey Weinstein said he cannot wear glasses. And Del Toro really pushed back because it's so trivial. Like, why can't he wear glasses? First of all, to justify the, the artist here, um, 
Del Toro loves showing human beings as imperfect, as the imperfect creatures that we are. So maybe, maybe the child is special. Maybe the man wears glasses. So like you can justify it that way. But even in the story, the glasses are used at a crucial point to link the conductors, the electricity. And I was just thinking, how would you do that without the glasses? He'd have to find some random metal object lying around near him, you know? Which would be totally contrived. I mean, that just seems like one of probably hundreds countless like weird demands that the Weinsteins had, which just made no sense whatsoever, you know? Yeah, it just sounded like they were they were just being jerks for the sake of it and just... Our trip, yeah. Yeah, picking on this new direct, this director new to Hollywood, at least. And they're like, well, let's test him. But like, shut the hell up. Let the man do his job. <laughs> yeah, who clearly is a very talented, skillful director, like judging from Kronos, a, a really bizarre, fun, entertaining movie. Um, yeah, and I like, you know, I have to wonder, too. I mean, Del Toro is not American. He's Mexican. Like, I wonder if part of the Weinstein's um, cruelty towards him was a result of that, you know, just some kind of like weird imperialism that they felt uh, wouldn't put it past him. No, I thought the same thing too. Like maybe they thought he was an easy target. Who knows? Yeah, um, I, I guess uh, a couple of the changes that they enforced sort of related to what you were just talking about. The character that Jeremy Northam plays, the doctor who wears the glasses, um, Del Toro originally wanted him to be played by Andre Brower, a black actor. He wanted that to be sort of a, a sign of hope of where American society was headed. Um, that he and Mira Sorvino would be in this interracial relationship. The Weinstein said that was not possible. American audiences were not ready for an interracial relationship and demanded that a white actor be cast instead. Um, so obviously that ruins the, you know, social commentary and the sort of thematic impact of what Del Toro wanted to do there. Another thing which you sort of alluded to before, and this we actually haven't mentioned this in the story yet, but um, spoilers again, the actual... Way that, the way that they come about is they mimic human behavior. Uh, they actually are able to sort of imitate the facial appearance of a human and sort of the standing upright silhouette sort of look of a human to sort of blend into everyday society. Um, Del Toro originally wanted that to be, like you said before, Vincent, kind of just evolution. Like th that's where the bugs are going. They're going to take over. They're learning from humans to conquer everything. So they're going to be the next conquering species and the Weinstein sort of forced them to make it no it's the sort of mad scientist story you know we've, we've seen so many times before and again I do sort of love that story like the Jurassic Park Frankenstein sort of thing but at the same time it's totally different than what Del Toro originally intended so this yeah many many ways that his original vision was not uh the final film that we see here yeah can I ask did you watch the theatrical or the director's cut the theatrical uh, unfortunately I know the director's cut is available on a relatively recent Blu-ray release, but I did not watch that one, unfortunately. No, I didn't either. Um, reading about the director's cut, it adds only six minutes. He doesn't delete a whole lot, but he does kind of mess with how he brings his themes of sort of the humanity and the, um, the, the next evolution type stuff. He's, he's able to bring it to the forefront a little bit more, and he's also able, in his director's cut, to play with the color palette of the lighting, which you alluded to earlier. And in all my research, like people are really big on the lighting of this movie. And I'll tell you, I don't think it's one of my favorite things in hindsight now uh, about the film. When it started, my first thought was, oh, this movie is a 90s movie. It had like a David Fincher 7 Fight Club type feel, which in my mind is just so quintessentially mid 90s. 
And at the time I was like, well, that's cool. I dig it. Cause it's like a gritty detective crime movie at the start. But in hindsight, I'm like, oh, that it looks like that because that's the box he was put into. I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, we do see like glimpses like, um, uh, you know, the sort of like amber egg sacs that they discover. There are like these big, huge egg sacs that they find in the subways and they sort of pulse with like little bugs inside of them. It's a really great effect. So like there, you know, there's a lot of like gold and amber in those shots. There's some like some great scenes like Mira Sorvino's lab that have just a lot of like electric blue lighting in there. That's sort of like very stylized and unrealistic. So I think there are some moments where we do see Del Toro's original intention. But yeah, you're totally right. The rest of it is kind of just like dark and grim to to capitalize on that like yeah, Fincher-esque aesthetic. Like a lot of a lot of green lighting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and sure. and I know in the director's cut, those ambers and those blues, they're just enhanced more, which is like, oh, that's his original vision. Yeah. So uh, I mean maybe we'll talk about that in a future installment. Who knows? Ah, oh, man, I wish there was more time. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. I know we're kind of, uh, we're getting long already. I don't know if you wanted to mention any, any of the similarities to like other Del Toro movies. I know we talked about that briefly a little bit. Yeah, I do. Um, before we get into that, let me tell you about some t-shirts from banditsemporium.com. You can visit banditsemporium.com or check out their link in our bio for t-shirts. Uh, they are our official t-shirt partner. Uh, right now I'm sporting the uh, logo for Camp Kaiju but we have a couple other designs on there as well. And one coming out for Valentine's Day, it's a Frankenstein design. So if you love monsters, check out banditsemporium.com. As they say, we sell shirts and use promo code CAMPKAIJU for 10% off your purchase. So check that out. Now, you were saying? Oh, well, you know, I was I'd like talk about, um, I, I love the shout out, by the way. I'm excited to see the Frankenstein shirt. I can't wait. Uh, but no, I, I think this movie is so interesting because we do see a lot of like foreshadowing of various like themes and like visual motifs that are going to reappear often throughout Del Toro's work. Um, I mean, bugs kind of reappear throughout a lot of his work, you know, which makes sense since he loves monsters so much. Theme of, you know, it's humans that are monsters after all, which honestly I think can be like a little overplayed or obvious sometimes, but I love that it's his like favorite theme and sometimes it's enormously effective. I mean, I think it works extremely well in Pan's Labyrinth. In, actually, I think uh, in Crimson Peak, it's not a monster per se, but I think that theme comes across really well in that also. Themes of time, you know, it's kind of uh, evolution in this case. There's immortality in Kronos to go with the sort of vampire lore that he plays with in that movie. Uh, it's ghosts and history and the repressed and the devil's backbone. So yeah, just a couple ideas that I think it's really cool to see in their early um, incarnations here because they'll reappear throughout a lot of his work later on. And as a Del Toro fan, if you watch all of his other, all the other movies, and then you go to Mimic, while there's a lot of contrived sort of run-of-the-mill things going on, if you are familiar with Del Toro, you're able to pick out all of his hallmarks. And it, and it does make it a richer experience. I got to say, um, this, I like this movie a lot, Mimic. Uh, it was better than I thought it would be because the director is so smart. And even if the studio puts so much nonsense on top of it, the you know, peaks of his vision, is got, they're going to come out. Um, like with the bugs, for instance. The guy really does love bugs. Uh, I think bugs are, like, they're gross. I love bugs as, like, I'm fascinated by them. But I can't help but when I see a cockroach, I'm like, ugh. Um, I, I found a quote from 
Del Toro, and this was on the commentary track for Kronos. He said, quote, I do happen to believe that insects, as far as form and function, are the most perfect, albeit soulless, creatures of creation. And Kronos, the previous film in his filmography, uh, before Mimic, uh, there's a bug at the center of that story as well. This insect literally grants immortality to the, the human who, who keeps it. I, I bring that up because that movie and Mimic and Pan's Labyrinth with the stick bugs that are the fairies, in each of these movies in particular, there's a relationship that Del Toro is defining between insects and religion. And based on that quote, he <laughs> obviously holds insects in a very high regard. And there were, there were, there were moments in, the, in some previous version of the script from Mimic where the characters alluded to insects as God's chosen creatures. Of course, those were cut because of studio intervention, but those themes are still there nonetheless. Because uh, in Mimic, the... The Judas breed, first and foremost, they're called the Judas breed. They're first discovered by our characters hiding out in a church. And a lot of action takes place in this church. And again, just that, that relationship between religion and insects, these lowly creatures, but yet are so advanced, you cannot kill them, uh, or at least it's very difficult to kill them. So very interesting stuff. Yeah, and I think at the same time, he has a pretty low opinion of organized religion a lot of the time. Like, I feel like in this movie, the fact that so much of the action does take place in this church, which is kind of derelict, and we see all these statues, like, covered in plastic wrap, um, it's actually suggested that there's kind of a sweatshop going on in this church. And, and also, a, a priest is the first person that is killed by this, like, monstrous insect creature. So... Yeah, I think all those things, and actually it's fascinating, the sort of big Jesus save sign on the church in this movie is also in Nightmare Alley, his, uh, his most recent movie. The same exact sign, he actually talked about it in interviews. Um, I just think it's so cool that like he's, you know, uh, whatever it is, 20 years later, or a little bit more, 25, he is, he's at, like adding little references to this movie, which like he didn't enjoy making all that much when he's like at the top of his game and he can make pretty much whatever he wants, you know? I think that's fascinating. That's incredible. Uh, so Nightmare Alley, I heard, drops on HBO February 1st. So I haven't seen it yet, but that's what I'm going to be watching February 1st in my house. I loved it. After The Devil's Backbone, it's my second favorite Del Toro. Um, okay. Uh, at, at, at the end, we can like riff a little bit about uh, our favorite movies. <laughs> also, the trailer for Pinocchio just dropped today, and it is... It is a minute of the cricket, an insect, speaking about Pinocchio. Perfect. It's meant to be. I love it. <laughs> There's bugs everywhere. <laughs> I expect nothing less of Del Toro. Um, for real. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I'm happy transitioning into our good, the bad, and the campy, if you are. For sure. Okay. Um, we've talked a lot about what we like. Uh, is there anything else that stood out to you specifically? Um, you know, I think there are a couple scenes that are legitimately scary in this movie. And that's kind of what you come to see in a horror movie. So there's one scene in particular where Chewie, the boy, uh, breaks into this uh, abandoned church. And two of the creatures surround him on both sides. And this is kind of the first time that we really get a good look. We, well, we don't get a good look, but we sort of see their stature and like what they actually look like. Uh, it's a fantastic scene and really genuinely scary. So um, the actual scares, top notch in this movie. I agree. And um, this is another reoccurring Del Toro theme, the use of children in his movies. The, the kids, I love the kids in this movie, not just Chewie, but the 
other there are two other kids who are just like street urchins they're just they they collect bugs to sell to the entomologist for who's using them as research and they get a couple bucks but then the entomologist uses those two kids to go exploring in the sewers to find like the eggs or whatever yeah and they get mutilated they get ripped to shreds i was not expecting that yeah even though the movie pretty much starts with kids dying i was still not expecting that <laughs> right and you never expect children to be killed in a movie but when it goes there well at least in this movie it is effective and it was genuinely horrifying yeah it's unexpected for sure those two kid characters are a lot of fun. They're also going to be in my campy section, but I'm glad that you like them. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, I also loved... So, okay, so as for the... There's the... There's Chewy. He is a shoeshine kid, and his father runs the shoeshine setup in the subway station. After watching Kronos and The Devil's Backbone, even Pan's Labyrinth, which are movies that take place in quote unquote, the old country, uh, in Mimic, that the shoeshine father and son had a very old world vibe to them. You know, the, that father, he's got like gray hair, mustache, he's in suspenders. He looks like he's from another time, let's say. And I loved it. It brought, there was like a real heart around that because I know where Del Toro was coming from. And I was like, that just feels so much like him. Um, and then Chewie, the shoeshine boy, he does, he like communicates with the, the cockroaches. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's sort of, again, like Pan's Labyrinth, where the girl in that movie communicates with uh, the monsters, which may or may not be sort of products of her imagination. It's sort of like the devil's backbone, where the boys at the school, or at least one boy in particular, communicates with the ghost there. Um, it's, it's a powerful recurring theme that Del Toro has, that kids are the ones who have this ability to communicate with these creatures that adults would prefer to believe don't exist. Um, it's an age-old theme, but it, it works really well in his movies. I agree, especially, and it, and it does work well in Mimic. Yeah, it was good. Anything didn't work that didn't work for you? Well, it's hard not to imagine the movie that could have been. I, I think this really could have been a dark, like, bold vision, especially, like, coming from a Hollywood studio, if Del Toro could have, would have been able to do what he wanted to do. I don't, you know, it's probably kind of pointless to imagine what could have been, and I'll have to watch the director's cut to see how that's different. But yeah, no, I, I think that could have really been something. I, I think, um, you know, I, I think, like, a problem in some of Del Toro's movies is that his human characters can be a little um, simplistic. Uh, you know, there's this duality between humans are monstrous, or at least some humans anyway, and monsters are better than humans. Uh, they just kind of behave the way that they're supposed to, whereas humans could be way better than they are, but they behave violently and cruelly to other people. Um, but that being said, I think humans oftentimes in his movies are either like, you know, saintly and innocent, or they're just totally reprehensible monsters. I think that's actually a big problem in The Shape of Water, which I am not a big fan of. And I think it's actually, I, I love The Devil's Backbone, but I sort of supposed to root for like the death of the villain in that movie who is just an awful like irredeemable character so you know i think that's present in mimic as well and certainly part of it could be because of the rewrites and all that i think part of it may not be because of that um you know del toro i think kind of deals in archetypes and sort of like broad symbolic characters sometimes and it doesn't always play very well especially like with the charles s dutton in this movie who's the the black transit cop who's sort of again spoilers here 
sacrifices himself for the other characters who are some of them are not very likable like don't really you know uh not really like care about that guy's safety you know like why is he sacrificing himself for these people that are sort of assholes some of them um yeah some of the characters i think can be a little bit simplistic and painted in like too broad of strokes if that makes sense totally and i think that uh dutton's character sacrificing himself that was a moment that struck me as very formulaic that i wonder I'm like, I don't know if that would have been Del Toro's first choice. Right. I was wondering that too. That could certainly be the case. Yeah. Yeah. But but you're right. I mean, he does paint in um, very broad strokes. And I and I've been this past few days. I've been watching the behind the scenes on Pan's Labyrinth, which is his like quintessential fairy tale. And at least regarding that movie, but maybe it'll shed some insight into what you're saying. In that, with that movie, he, he does say on one of the documentaries, he's like, this is a fairy tale. I don't need to explain everything. The character is this way, and you have to, you have to play within those archetypes. Yeah, and sometimes I do think it works well. I think it works in Pan's Labyrinth, which is so clearly supposed to be allegorical for you know, Spanish history or just human history in general. But sometimes I think it doesn't work quite as well. Um, but yeah, no, you're totally right. There's some, um, there's intentionality to those characterizations for sure. Yeah, but I hear you. Um, for me, the one thing that stood out was the use of the computer graphics in this movie. Uh, his practical effects obviously are gorgeous. They stand the test of time, but the, this was some of the worst CGI that I've seen from the 90s. Yeah. Relatively early, uh, it, it is 1997, but I read that it was like the most CGI shots uh, of any movie up until that point, except for Jurassic Park. But yeah, in this, it does not come off very well. And it's, it's obviously very dated. Yeah. And that's another thing. Like, I love trying to figure out where was Del Toro's influence and where was the studio? Because whenever the, the cockroaches are in the shadows, like, it, that works. Like, less is more. Yeah. But maybe, I'm just... You know, maybe, maybe the studio, the Weinsteins were like, you have to show the bugs because it's a monster movie. Once again, I had exactly the same thought as you. And it reminded me of another movie that we talked about back in the fall, Cat People by Jacques Tourneur. The best example ever at using like suggestion and subtlety and shadow to, to convey danger and a threat. Um, I wish Del Toro could have done something like that a little more often with, with Mimic, but he probably was not able to do that. Right. But, oh yeah, that's a good, that's a good example of, what could have been? For my campy, uh, yeah, I love the kids, but specifically um, uh, Dutton as the transit authority cop. He is a total train nerd. He knows everything about the history and the inner workings of the New York City subway. <laughs> and it does come off as kind of random and like, you know, contrived, but he's so genuine in his enthusiasm. I'm like, you're such a dork. <laughs> He's a fun character, yeah. M most of his time on screen is spent like yelling at that Jeremy Northam character. And I loved it because I sort of hate that Jeremy Northam character. So I'm like, thank you, Charles Dutton. You're saying what all of us are feeling right now. Very satisfying. Yeah. Uh, for me, the campy really is, it's probably those two like street urchin kids. Uh, there, one of the, there's a scene where one of those kids says to Mira Sorvino's character, whatever peels your banana lady. And I laughed out loud at that line, like, wow, that's very stupid, but very funny. And I love it. Like in general, those kids seem like they came off of like a came off of like a like a gritty version of Little Rascals or something. It's uh, it's pretty silly, but it's it's very entertaining. One hundred percent. Oh my gosh, 
whatever peels your banana lady. I forgot about that. <laughs> so dumb, but so good. <clears throat> um, well, in the interest of time, what do you think of this film 25 years on? So to me, uh, I would say that this movie is historically significant or fun, but it does not stand the test of time. It has its moments for sure. I, I love seeing like the um, foreshadowing of Del Toro's later career. And I think you, you know, like picking apart the bad moments to get to like what could have been is really fascinating. And there are still some great scenes in this movie, but, but for me, it does not quite stand the test of time. Interesting. So last week on Return, or two weeks ago with Return of Godzilla, you thought it stood the test of time or as a classic. I did not. This week, we're going to flip. I think Mimic is not a classic, but I do think it has enough great moments for it to stand the test of time. You know, it's not a classic by Del Toro standards, but I think if any other director made this in the 90s, you would think, oh my, why, why aren't we talking about this movie more often? Yeah, to me, it's, it's close to that level. I'm really happy to hear that you thought that. And um, it's close to that level for me, but there's like that, the studio interference and the, you know, just imagining what could have been keeps this from that level for me. For sure. Yeah, the 90s were such an interesting time for movies. And I don't really hear... Uh, come across a lot of classic monster movies from the 90s. Examples of classics are, are more cult classics, I feel like. And I think this one is a cult classic based on my readings. I get that sense, but, but I, think it should be, I think it should be talked about more. I love it. I'll totally get behind that, even if I didn't love it quite as much as you did. <laughs> well, it wasn't, my, it's, all right. So thank you everybody uh, for joining us at Camp Kaiju next time. I will be bringing Peter Jackson's King Kong to the show. We're going to go to the mid-2000s and uh, talk about that movie. Thanks for listening, friends. If you like what you hear, please follow, rate, and review this podcast. And follow us on Instagram for more monster movie talk. I'm Vincent Hannum with Matt Levine, music by Terrence Jackson. And until next time, stay campy. Oh, and don't forget to visit BanditsEmporium.com or hit the link in our bio to shop Camp Kaiju t-shirts. BanditsEmporium.com is our official t-shirt partner, so show them some love while you're at it. You're in good sleeves. Uh, arms. Either way, just use promo code CAMPKAIJU at checkout for that 10% discount. And whatever your style, BanditsEmporium.com has you covered. As they say, we sell Shirts. The Strickler's disease came to New York like a thief in the night. It was deadly, threatening to steal an entire generation of our children from before our eyes. Since it has proven to be virtually immune to chemical control, we had to find a new avenue of attack. We recombined DNA to create a biological counteragent. We call it the Judas Breed. Now, the cure they created has taken on a life of its own. So you think your little Frankenstein's got the better of you? They all died in the lab. But you let them out. Evolution has a way of keeping things alive. Sometimes an insect will evolve to mimic its predator. A fly can look like a spider. A caterpillar can look like a snake. They are breeding. Whatever it becomes, it destroys. Peter, these are lungs. Yesterday, it became human. If that thing has been around, how come nobody's ever seen it? I think we have. 
You see the size of that thing? We changed its DNA. Mira Sorvino, Jeremy Northam, Josh Brolin, Charles Dutton, Giancarlo Giannini, F. Murray Abraham, Mimic.